a, a group of activists in Atlanta started meeting in December of 82. That's 18 months after uh, uh, the first reports. They organized what, what became Aid Atlanta. And the purpose was they were going to raise money to send to New York to the gay men's health crisis. And GMHC got in touch with us and uh, said, we, we, we thank you very much, but you need to keep it there because it's coming. That was, that was the start of the response here. Thank you for joining the program today. I'm Lolita Rowe, the Community Outreach Archivist at Emory University Library, Stuart A. Rowe's Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you are listening to Rose Library Presents Community Conversations, a series of interviews with people connected to our collections. This episode features an interview with Dr. Jesse Peel, conducted by Randy Q, the Assistant Director and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movements Collections. Dr. Peel is an HIV-positive psychiatrist and activist in the LGBTQ community. He moved to Atlanta in 1976 and was a founding member in AIDS groups such as Positive Impact and Aid Atlanta. Dr. Peel, thank you for being with us today on Community Conversations. Thank you again. Your papers are an essential part of our holdings about the history of the city of Atlanta and also about the city's LGBTQ communities. Um, And one important aspect of your papers and the collections that we have here at the Rose Library is how um, they illuminate our past, but also shed light on uh, our current experiences. With that in mind, today I'd like to talk to you about your experiences during the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and 1990s, and then get your thoughts about uh, the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing today. But first, I kind of want to step back to set the stage for the horror. Um, When did you move to Atlanta? 1976. And uh, why why did you come here? I came here to learn how to be queer. (laughs) What, What does that mean? It means I was on faculty at Vanderbilt uh, up in Nashville. I came out while I was there. And when you start running into your clients coming out of a gay bar when you're going in, maybe it's time to move on. So Atlanta was the obvious choice. And I had a lot of catch-up to do because I was a late bloomer. And so uh, what was gay Atlanta like before the HIV-AIDS crisis? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Atlanta was the place that gay boys from all over the Southeast uh, moved to. Uh, it was a, uh, a place where you could be out, be gay. It was a party town. I didn't realize that the gay movement was, was, was so young. Uh, it was only later that I put it in perspective that Stonewall had been only just a few years earlier. You're you're a small town Southern boy, and you ended up coming to Atlanta for the same reasons that a whole bunch of other uh, small town Southern boys came to Atlanta. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, if you're from the Southeast, where are you going to go? Uh, certainly not going to Miami. That's not Southern. Uh, it, it's either New Orleans, uh, uh, St. Louis. Uh, my folks were in North Carolina, so Atlanta was 
the obvious place, uh, metropolitan area, and and easy enough to get home uh, when I needed to. In June 5th, 1981, the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report uh, reported there were five cases of what was thought to be an unusual pneumonia in Los Angeles that resulted in two deaths. And the patients were described in the report as active homosexuals. The mention in the, in the CDC's report prompted additional case reports from New York City, San Francisco, and other cities. Um, so kind of from the beginning, HIV AIDS was characterized as a gay disease. What kind of ramifications were there to that description, that, that characterization? Well, it meant that nobody wanted to touch it. Uh, uh, once the epidemic really got rolling, uh, uh, Reagan wouldn't talk about it. Uh, Bush wouldn't talk about it other than uh gay men uh, in, uh, uh, infected before uh, anybody wanted to pay attention. We were expendable. We really didn't know uh, exactly how this was uh, transmitted. And there was just unreasonable uh, fear out there. The fear was irrational. There was talk about uh, quarantine. When you're dealing with, with the unknown, uh, people can get awfully crazy. Uh, but do, do you think this fear was generated because it was a quote-unquote gay disease at, considered that, that at the that, time? I think that contributed to it. It, it, was, it was happening to an other so that uh, mainstream society didn't have to deal with it. With the current crisis we're in, it's affecting everybody. So there's not an other there, even though... Uh, the uh, uh, black and brown people are obviously suffering um, more than uh, uh, the rest of the population. It's still uh, it, it, it's affecting everybody, all age groups and sexes and so on. And do you remember the first time you heard about or encountered uh, HIV AIDS? I, I was getting information from the uh, uh, AMA newspaper, uh, newsletter that came out uh, weekly. A, a group of activists in Atlanta uh, or, uh, started meeting in December of 82. That's uh, 18 months after uh, uh, the first reports. And they were going to, they organized what, what became Aid Atlanta. And the purpose was they were going to raise money to send to New York to the gay men's health crisis. And GMHC got in touch with us and uh, said, we, we, we thank you very much, but you need to keep it there because it's coming. Uh, and that was, uh, that, was, that was the start of the response here. Well, and that's really interesting. The, y'all, they were looking to raise money to send to New York City to help, but yeah. and that was because they didn't think it was it was going to be. A- it hadn't really. Uh, AIDS was something that, that that remained silent for 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 many years. Uh, you could be infected and uh, and uh, show no symptoms, whatever. Uh, and it just hadn't started. People hadn't started dying here in Atlanta uh, at that time. 
Well, and, you know, you're a psychiatrist so by profession, so you actually experienced the epidemic both professionally and personally. Um, what was it what was it like professionally what what did you what did you see at the beginning of the crisis well i tell people careful what you ask for when i moved to atlanta uh, i joined a large psychiatric group and being the gay boy in the group uh, i started uh, uh, actively cultivating a gay clientele uh, homosexuality had just only a few years earlier been taken off the dsm i advertised in the uh, uh, Southern Voice and the, uh, uh, the, the other bar rags. By the early 80s, I had about a third of my outpatient practice was, was gay men. Uh, and that's when I began to, uh, uh, patients were coming in that they had friends that had gotten sick, friends had died. Uh, I was uh, on staff at uh, Piedmont and West Paces Ferry Hospital, so I, so I began to get uh, uh, consultations uh, to see uh, young men who were sick. There really wasn't much that I could, could offer. Uh, they needed a minister more than they needed a psychiatrist. I, I teamed up with my, uh, with my minister, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, to uh, brought him in uh, as a consultant with with many of the kids I saw, because these were young young men in their twenties, thirties. Mama didn't even know they were uh, gay, much less they were dying of AIDS. Well, and that's a really important point. They were dying of AIDS at this time. There was no uh, real treatment for it, um, and so uh, diagnosis of. HIV/AIDS was it was a death sentence. It, it, essentially, it was. It, it, it wasn't if you were going to die. It was a matter of uh, of, of when. And there was there was several tragedies of guys that preempted uh, uh, and suicide uh, suicided, uh, not wanting to go through because AIDS is a long, lingering, uh, very difficult way to die. Also, Atlanta had no, no gay infrastructure. Uh, we didn't come to Atlanta to join uh, groups and, uh, or, and organizations. We, joined, we came here to, to be queer. Uh, and, and we didn't have a gay center. Uh, and, and there was no government support. So it was up to us to uh, provide our own support. And all you could really do was uh, provide comfort and companionship uh, uh, when we when we organized I, I went on the board of Aid Atlanta in 1984 um, and the, the main thing we could offer at that point was a, a buddy program we had hundreds of volunteers uh, and we organized and support groups uh, a buddy would uh, be somebody that would do your grocery shopping take you to the uh, uh, to the doctor and clean up your shitty toilet, uh, and uh, do whatever. But, but as much as anything else, it's just to be a companion. And, and that's also something different than, than what we're experiencing now, where, where people are in the hospital by themselves with no family or supporter except to, 
the overworked nursing staff. Uh, well, and the isolation had a lot to do with um, who these folks were, right? They were small town kids from small southern cities, and their families didn't necessarily um, accept them and accept what they were going through. That really varied. Some of them had been disowned by families, but uh, there were also some very heartwarming kinds of uh, stories. This is my son, uh, and, uh, you know, I love you no matter what. Uh, And that's, uh, and as some of these kids went back home, essentially to die, uh, it began to have uh, an impact in the larger society. Well, well, I've known little Johnny since he was knee high. He's Aunt Mary's uh, boy. Uh, and when you can put a face on, uh, it's hard to demonize somebody that you grew up with. There were lots of courageous mamas and dads that uh, – uh, that stood by their kids. There was a lot of tragedy in which uh, they wouldn't even allow uh, a burial in the family plot. Uh, so we, we saw it all. And you you also had uh, ministers railing from the pulpit that this was God's retribution. That's what Charles Stanley was saying, that it's uh, God's punishment for homosexuals. Of course, he didn't bother to mention about Haitians and homosexuals hemophiliacs, which were also uh, 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 affected at the same time. The gay population was an other, and it's easy to demonize an other. Uh, And and there was a lot of that going on until you had several uh, things that occurred. Uh, Rock Hudson's uh, uh, illness being coming out as public uh, was was a major uh, kind of step. Pictures of what we saw of Princess Di uh, holding AIDS babies uh, began to overcome the stigma. Heroes like uh, Elizabeth Taylor uh, uh, really stepping forward because Rock Hudson was a good friend of hers. But it took a young straight boy, uh, Brian White, getting sick uh, to, to finally be able to... Uh, to mobilize some uh, government response. Uh, he was befriended by Elton John, Michael, uh, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, and we, we still call it the Ryan White uh, Care Act. So, Jesse, you mentioned uh, your activism earlier. How did you decide to get involved? Well, I was wanting to get involved. I first tried to get involved in the gay center, and they, they weren't interested uh, so I, uh, uh, there was a uh, meeting uh, at Emory. Uh, it was a Southeast uh, Gay and Lesbian uh, uh, Health uh, uh, Conference. And I met Caitlin Ryan, who was the executive director at Aid Atlanta, and, and asked how could I help. So I came on the board in the spring of uh, 84. We had, at that time, a $60,000 budget, one and a half employees. And obviously, the thing they needed was money. So I talked to my partner, John, and suggested we we have a party. 
I went to a couple of other friends who uh, entertained a good bit. We combined uh, our guest list. I had my secretary out at the center. Uh, we, we sent out about 200 invitations. Uh, and uh, we had a cocktail party poolside. I had my friends from Nashville come down with their traveling DJ uh, uh, operation. And, uh, but this was going to be a cocktail party where we charged admission. Uh, the people that couldn't come sent a check. Uh, that, uh, that Saturday afternoon, we raised uh, over $5,000. And I've been doing this shit ever since. One thing gay men can do is throw a party. So you, you play to your strength. Uh, you, you do what you can do best. At this point, government um, subsidized services for people with AIDS, either locally in the state or federally. Um, as you mentioned, the community had to come up with a response themselves. First, we had to organize the infrastructure, the, the, the agencies. We had Aid Atlanta, and, um, and we began to to spin off from there uh, uh, additional organizations. Um, uh, Project Open Hand was born. Uh, uh, Mike Edwards started uh, cooking meals at the kitchen at St. Bartholomew's Episcopal Church, and that became Project Open Hand. You, you could make direct appeals, uh, but there were a lot of people that were very reluctant to write a check to Aid Atlanta. So we had uh, we organized uh, black tie uh, e events. Uh, one organization did a casino night. Another one uh, did a wine tasting. Came uh, uh, in uh, know how to throw parties, and 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 we did that exceedingly well to help those folks that were reluctant to write checks. Uh, my friend Alan Jones organized what is what was called uh, Helping Hands. We would meet once a month at the Ritz-Carlton downtown, not in Buckhead, but downtown, and uh, you could write a check to uh, Helping Hands, and the money was laundered over to uh, Aid Atlanta directly. We also um, we had a really good uh, health, uh, health department uh, at that time. Uh, Fulton County wanted to work with uh, uh, with us, but for testing site, uh, the and DHR uh, wanted to work with Aid Atlanta for on prevention, but the governor Joe Frank Harris refused to allow DHR to uh, to to work with those people. So we laundered the money through the Christian Council. They passed it through without any, uh, without taking anything off the top, and we learned about money laundering. All right, um, I've got some statistics here for you from the CDC. Um, the CDC estimates that uh, between 1981 and 1987, almost 48,000 people died in the U.S. died of HIV/AIDS. From 1988 to 1992, they estimate almost 181,000 people um, died. And then from 1993 to 1995, the CDC estimates almost 160,000 people in the U.S. died from HIV AIDS. It's a whole generation. What was it like to live through that? 
Well, you went to a funeral every week. One of the first things uh, I, I, I always have subscribed to the AJC. Uh, first thing in the morning when I'm having my coffee, I uh, get the paper, uh, read the comics. But back in those days, before I even did that, I checked the obituaries because I, I didn't want to miss anybody. And as you know from the from the papers at Emory, I I clipped obituaries. And as I kept my journals, uh, I would I would take those uh, obituaries in, into the uh, into the journals. I also uh, I had a it was a drug giveaway a, a, a calendar uh, that uh, John and I kept as our our social calendar. And when people died, I would uh, write up in the margins the date and the name. Those lists became pretty long. When did you stop doing that? When I got to 100, I just quit counting. Uh, 100 people? Some of my, most of my closest friends. Um, I, I have other, other friends that uh, have lists that go to two or 300. Uh, after a while, you, you even quit going to some of the funerals. You just had to take a break. Uh, you had no time to grieve. Uh, by the time you, uh, uh, before you could deal with one death, you had another one uh, uh, to uh, to deal with. I had I lost my first really close friend back. I guess it was in '86. And so, you know, you mentioned your social calendars. Looking at them are extraordinary because um, each week it kind of alternates in between um, board meetings at aid service organizations and funerals. Um, your calendar was um, frighteningly steady with your activism, but then also with funerals. It's it's kind of hard, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Looking at those, it's hard to comprehend um, how regular the funerals were. But at least we were able to have funerals. And that's a difference with what uh, people are experiencing today. And it also was over a period of 10 or 15 years. This has been nine months. And uh, the... Uh, uh, we could gather, we could comfort each other, uh, we could hug, we could cry, uh, and and uh, I talk, I joke about the funerals as an art form, but it was it was a time that community could come together and we could care for one another, and and we had to do that. Uh, uh, we also had. Uh, some incredible allies. We weren't in this by ourselves. Uh, 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 the lesbian community was incredibly help, uh, strong and helpful. Um, and we had many, many supporters and friends in the straight community because all of these folks live up in Buckhead. They've got designers and hairdressers and their favorite actors. Uh, that that uh, I don't think people realize that uh, how how supportive many of these uh, people were 
uh, in the effort. Uh, the, the ladies of the Junior League uh, are the ones that organized uh, Jerusalem House. Uh, the, 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 they were the founding members, and when uh, and our, our our city leadership was also very supportive. When uh, 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 when Heartstrings, uh, the big uh, uh, production that we had at the uh, fundraiser we had at the Fox uh, the first year. Uh, uh, Andy Young was uh, co-chair of that uh, event, and it became an annual uh, fundraising event uh, uh, here in Atlanta. When we decided to take it on the road, uh, they were this is sometime during the late '80s. I don't remember when the uh, road uh, road trip of uh, national tour of Heartstrings was, but um, the the itinerary was set out. And uh, David Shepard went to uh, who was he was organizing this, uh, met with uh, Mayor Young, and uh, the mayor called the mayor in every city that Heartstrings went to and talked to them personally and said, "You need to uh, sign on and uh, and uh, co-sponsor uh, this event." Every one of them uh, agreed to, except the mayor of Louisville. Another parallel with today. Why does Louisville no. always? Why does Louisville We're always stand out? Get the message. <laughs> um. So Jesse, you're a psychiatrist. How did how did you deal with all this? How did you deal with the crisis, with the sickness, with the death? Well, one of the things I did was take some of my own advice. Uh, uh, when you're dealing with a lot of stress. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, therapists recommend is to journal, and so I I started I started journaling. I took my journal everywhere I went. Uh, I wrote on uh, airplanes, <laughs> on vacation. Uh, we took a lot of trips. Uh, uh, you had to get away. Um, you. You didn't wait until you uh, had time to take a vacation. You scheduled it. You checked out, left your uh, clients with uh, uh, the care of uh, uh, a colleague, and you you took off. Uh, you you had you had to take care of yourself. Dealing with this kind of thing is like uh, having a bank account. If you keep writing checks and writing checks and not making deposits, you're going to soon be uh, 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 overdraft. Uh, so you have to, to do things to make deposits in order to keep some kind of balance. So uh, trips to the beach, uh, trips to convention, uh, I and wherever we went, I was writing in my journals all the time. It was some of it was. Free association. Uh, a lot of it was under the influence of substances, um, and I wrote about everything. Uh, I critiqued the hotels we were in and the, the meals we had, and sometimes uh, wrote about the hot sex that we just had. Uh, but it's all nobody was ever going to read it anyhow. Uh, 
I would I would often comment. Uh, nobody gives a rat's ass about this, uh, but later on, I found out that that folks were interested. So, yeah, there there are extraordinary historical documents about a particular moment um, in our history. But what what was it about journal? What is it, and what was it about journaling that helps? It's a way of of, of expressing your emotions and. Uh, and you can talk to people, but people can only take so much of uh, they're dealing with their own shit. Uh, uh, you you can only piss and moan so much uh, uh, with them. Uh, so it's it, and for me it was a way of of processing family drama, a uh, uh, relationship with a, a person who had addiction issues. It was an extension of therapy, and uh, and I also uh, I recommended and took my own advice and had a damn good therapist. Well, and do you think journaling, speaking from your experiences in an epidemic, do you think journaling would be helpful to people uh, in the pandemic that we're experiencing currently? You need to do whatever works for you. Today, people are using social media to uh, to express some of these things, and and you have uh, uh, as you scroll through Facebook, you see all kinds of of issues being dealt with. We didn't have Facebook back then. We didn't have uh, social media, uh, so you were stuck with trying to do something that would work for you. And I like to write. Uh, I'm a pretty good wordsmith. And it was a way of, of sort of processing and organizing my own thoughts. Well, and so there was no um, useful treatment for HIV AIDS until much later, about 15 years after that initial CDC report. I don't uh, remember when AZT uh, first came out. Uh, it was sometime during the late '80s. It, it wasn't. It, it, it was fairly. Uh, when we first started using it, we were overdosing people with it uh, until we learned how to. Um, uh, uh, but it was '96 before uh, the three drug cocktail uh, came out. We began to get uh, some relief from from the dying. Well, and then can I ask you um, about your personal experience? Um, you're, you're HIV positive, correct? From uh, about, I think it was 87, 88. I don't remember which year it was. Yeah. And, and you set a goal when you found that out. You set a goal. Um, what, 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 was the, what was the goal that you set? Well, uh, when the test came out, uh, we were reluctant to get tested because uh, there was no protection uh, from uh, uh, being fired if you uh, if you tested positive. So initially, that we were reluctant to get it, but then you, you needed to know. You uh, you operated, uh, led your life, assuming that you were positive, but hoping you had missed the bullet. So uh, finally, it was time I, 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 I got tested. 
So my response was, I, I need to cut back some of my practice. But if you cut back on your practice, you cut back on your income. Uh, so I juggled that for several years. And then uh, because we had excellent uh, 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 disability insurance, I decided in 92 to, to take disability. Uh, I'd, I'd been at this almost 10 years, and I was pretty much burned out. Uh, but when I decided to make that decision, uh, it was four years until the Olympics were coming. And I damn well wanted to, uh, to be here because Atlanta was, was just salivating uh, to host these games. So my goal was to live four more years until the games arrived. Uh, and that's, that's really, a, at that time, uh, I, was, I was 52. Uh, so four years is, th- th- that's a very modest goal, unless your friends are dropping uh, around you like flies. I lasted four more years. The games came and went. The three-drug three cocktail came out, and I became undetectable for the first time. Uh, so I set my goal for the millennium, and you see how this story goes. I just, uh, uh, back in March, uh, turned 80 and, and still setting goals. Well, in uh, the last social occasion you had um, before the coronavirus lockdown was what? It was my 80th birthday party, and it was four days before I went into lockdown. It was the 8th, Sunday the 8th, and that Thursday the 12th. I haven't done anything since. (laughs) Well, in speaking about um, our current circumstances, are there any kind of um, lessons or is there any similarities or differences you see between the coronavirus pandemic and the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic that you experienced? Well, the thing that's, that's the same is uh, the, the sense of overwhelming loss. Uh, Ours occurred over a period of years. This has occurred uh, in such an overwhelming fashion in just a matter of months. I guess another similarity is not wanting to to follow the guidelines of how to take care of yourself. That was a big uh, hoopla about whether to close the bathhouses or not back during the 80s. there was uh, every gay bar uh, that you went to had a big fishbowl full of condoms. Uh, you go to your doctor's office, there was a big bowl of condoms there. We weren't telling people not to have sex. We were just telling people to try to protect themselves. Folks don't like to follow uh, follow the rules, don't like to have to have their choices restricted. And we see what what has happened with the anti-maskers. I, I think a lot of what we've seen with the uh, the inappropriate behavior of gathering without masks is has to do with humans need human contact. 
and we're asking people to be isolated. That's really tough. It's a lot tougher on young folks than it is for old farts like me. Uh, but uh, it's, I've, I've developed much more of a stay-at-home kind of uh, mentality over the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, but if you're in your 20s or 30s uh, to, and living by yourself, uh, uh, that's that's a tough kind of thing to uh, to ask a person to do. It's essential that uh, they do it. So many of these young people now have not had the experience of burying their friends. When you've when you've had that kind of experience, it makes you more sensitive to that could be me there. I've done just as much shit as he had done, had done probably more, and so uh, there's no reason to think that I'm going to escape. But most folks today haven't had that kind of uh, experience. So uh, those of us that that survive the horror, uh, sometimes you respond, "Been there, done that." So you you find ways to lock down and keep yourself. Uh, try to keep yourself sane. Well, and did you ever think that you would see two uh, ep- epidemics, pandemics in your lifetime? Oh, shit, no. Oh, God, no. Uh, never expected anything like this. And, and it's, of course, it's been so much worse than it ought to have been because uh, we've seen how other countries have... have but But even there... People get pandemic fatigue, and uh, and so you have reemergent spikes. We ain't seen the worst of this yet. Uh, the next three months are going to be are going to be horrible, and and we and we've got we've got to think about survival uh, because we'll get through this. Uh, there's there's help on the way. We're going to get, uh, we've got, it's amazing how, how quickly vaccines have been developed in, in, uh, for this thing. But uh, getting three, 300 million people uh, vaccinated is a Herculean task. And especially when you have a bunch of anti-vaxxers out there. Uh, uh, so it's, it's a real challenge. One of the great things about your papers is that we have those stories to reflect upon. What does it mean to you to have these materials that you created and you collected with no intention of no, of anyone else ever seeing, to have them preserved and made available to folks um, to look at and to examine and to explore? Well, it's it's really kind of overwhelming. Um, because I've never thought my thought of myself as being anything special. <laughs> you you have you know more about my life than I do. Uh, at, at this point, uh, you have all the letters I ever wrote to my mom, uh, the 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 tapes from Vietnam uh, when I was there, and these uh, very intimate. Uh, uh, personal reflections uh, in, in the journals, it tells you 
what one man's story was like. Uh, and I didn't do anything to sanitize it. Uh, so it's, it's warts and all. Uh, if you're offended by it, turn the page and there'll be a different story. A more offensive story on the next page. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. Well, what I'd love to tell people that uh, your papers, the significance I see in your papers is um, agency. How does one person make a difference in their lives? And I think that your collection is a perfect illustration of it through your, your activism and uh, all that. So that's that's what I see as kind of the um, the larger story in your collection is how does one make an impact on um, during the course of your life? Because I feel like so many people feel powerless these days, and you provide a great model of how, how to make a difference. Well, Randy, I it was a matter of survival. I re, I retired almost thirty years ago, and. Uh, I, I, I knew from experience of uh, uh, working with uh, patients over uh, my career, uh, people that uh, worked their whole life and then retired with nothing to do didn't survive very long. Uh, if you were going to survive, you had to be engaged. So uh, I, when I retired, I threw myself into working with groups. Uh, I just substituted groups for individuals and uh, uh, kept going uh, for many years. Most of my work was uh, with uh, uh, AIDS and uh, 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 gay organizations. And then I, I kind of got Kind of got tired of death and dying, so I got involved in uh, in in the arts, uh, gay men's chorus, uh, Actors Express. Uh, I I went on the boards of several theater groups. Uh, got involved in uh, uh, projects up at East Carolina uh, uh, with uh, their LGBT center and uh, some of the other initiatives we did up there. I, I needed to have something to do in order to stay engaged. And uh, I was fortunate that uh, I didn't have to worry about uh, where the next meal was coming from. So if, if I've been given this reprieve, then it absolutely, uh, I have no choice but to do something productive with it. And reaching out to, to other people was, was the obvious choice. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Peel, for all that you do. <laughs> thank you. Community Conversations is produced by Lolita Rowe and Nick Twimlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor. Music created by Sister Sai. We are grateful for the support provided by our colleagues at the Rose Library, Jennifer King, Director of Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to Dr. Peel and Randy Q. Please join us next month for a conversation between Anika Austin, Rose Library's visiting archivist for the Jeffrey Holder and Carmen de la Vlad papers, and Tierra Thomas, visiting archivist for Southern Jewish Collections. For more information about Rose Library and our other podcast series, Behind the Archives and Atlanta Intersections, please visit us at rose.library.emory.edu. 
and follow us on the Rose Library Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find Community Conversations and our other podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds.